All right. Well, <clears throat> happy Resurrection Day to all of you this morning. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're thankful that you're here. Uh, this is a central holiday, as you know, to Christianity, and the significance of it is that our Savior was not defeated by death, but that he defeated death on our behalf and that he lives, and the promise is that those who are in him and are united to him by faith will have a share in his victory over death. So this morning, we're going to look at the significance of the resurrection. Let me do this first. Let me just pray and then we will move into our sermon this morning. So let's pray. God, we thank you for meeting with us this morning. Thank you for gathering us together. We just ask that you would lead the saints in encouragement. Those who don't know you, we ask that you would use your word according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's two parts to the sermon this morning. First, what we're going to do is cover the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Everyone needs to know what happened, and when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we want to see what took place there. Second, we are going to answer the question, why do I need Jesus' death and resurrection in my life? Why is his particular life that death and resurrection is so important, and not only just important, but it is personally needful, needy to me, like I need this. There are other important characters in history, such as, you know, pick one, Alexander the Great. No doubt his life and what he did shaped a lot of our culture. Um, you can pick somebody like George Washington. His life definitely has a significance in our lives that we're actually here in Americans today. But there might not be a personal aspect to that. Why is it that Jesus' death and resurrection is important for us today? So we'll get on board with the first, and then we'll move to the second. The first one is simply uh, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. So there's four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the Gospels that share the biography of Jesus' life. His earthly life begins with what we would call as a spectacular beginning. The Bible tells us in Matthew and in Luke that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin woman. Why did this happen this way? It's because Jesus existed already before becoming a human, he existed as the Son of God, yet he was coming into Mary's womb as God in human form. He then grew up as a young boy, a teenager, and an adult man. And at 30 years old, Jesus began an earthly ministry. And as we have seen in our study of Mark, if you've been with us, Jesus slowly but steadily was showing and explaining to people that he was truly the son of God who had come to provide deliverance for sins. That's why Jesus came. His reputation as a miracle worker and as a teacher just skyrocketed. The crowds, for the most part, they really enjoyed him, but did not necessarily believe everything that he said. On the other hand, the religious leaders hated him. And from very early on in his public ministry, they began plotting how they might destroy him. For three years, Jesus' very public ministry went on. 
And then he entered the city of Jerusalem during one of the busiest weeks of the year. It was a holiday week. The Jews were celebrating a national holiday called Passover that goes deep into their history where God had rescued them from Egypt and by the Passover angel had spared the firstborn for those who believed. Thousands of people, thousands of people from around the region would flood Jerusalem and offer sacrifices at the temple. It was a religious holiday for these Jews. And because Jesus had become so popular in the surrounding regions, and because the crowd from the surrounding regions was actually there in Jerusalem, they were anticipating his arrival, and he was welcomed as a king. People were lining the streets with palm branches and shouting out, Hosanna. Their salvation had come. They thought that Jesus was here coming to Jerusalem to set up an earthly kingdom and sit on the throne of David, the great historic king of Israel. But contrary to their high expectations, Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem, not to rule and reign as a king, but to die by the end of the week. He had privately told his disciples three times he had to go to Jerusalem for this purpose, to die, not to set up, an earthly kingdom. Well, when Jesus arrived, the powerful and influential religious leaders who saw the crowds, who saw the crowds' excitement over Jesus, their growing loyalty to him, they cooked up a plan that week to end Jesus' life, Jesus being very well aware of it. They deceived the anxious crowds about Jesus. And eventually they got the crowd to a point where they were on the verge of throwing a riot. Jerusalem was under Roman government, so Roman rulers are in a delicate situation because, as we've seen over the last few years, riots can cause a lot of destruction. However, this crowd would not settle down unless Jesus was killed. And the religious leaders convinced both the governing authorities and the crowd to see that Jesus was unjustly killed in order to keep things peaceful. So Jesus, who committed no crime, he was sentenced to death sometime between Thursday night and early Friday morning. He was beaten and whipped by soldiers. The soldiers mocked him and formed a crown, sort of like a wreath, made out of thorns, pressed it on his head. After having beaten him, they led him back outside of Jerusalem to a small hill called Golgotha. Golgotha simply means the place of a skull. It's got the lingering sound of death to it. And that's where they would have put the cross down on the ground, and then the soldiers would have laid Jesus down on the beams of that cross, and driven nails into his hands, possibly his wrists, just beneath his hands. His feet more than likely would have been overlapped and placed on a little 45-degree angle step that would have been towards the bottom of the vertical beam. His feet would have been nailed to that. More than likely, he was naked, already beaten. And laying on that cross, the cross would have then been hoisted up and dropped into a pre-dug hole. 
And there Jesus was suspended. Remember, he knew he had to go to Jerusalem for this. For six hours, Jesus hung there, beginning at 9 a.m. in the morning. And then by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Bible says that Jesus was dead. In order to make certain that criminals who hung on the cross... Roman soldiers often had a way of making sure they would die there. You see, their arms were stretched out, but their legs still nailed down to a little step or a bump on the cross. They could prop themselves up to breathe and then sag back down. And if the criminals were alive this long on the cross, the soldiers would take a club, customarily, and break the legs of the criminals so that they could no longer heave themselves up to breathe. With legs broken, they would have suffocated to death. But in Jesus' case, he had died before his legs were broken, and this was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that not a bone of his would be broken. However, there was a Roman soldier who approached him. He was a centurion. And he took a long spear, and from the ground, he thrust it upward into Jesus' side underneath his ribs to make sure that Jesus was dead. And the Bible says that from that hole punctured into his side came water and blood. It's clear that Jesus was dead. He had died. Well, that afternoon, we sang about this, a man named Joseph from the area of Arimathea, He was given permission by the Roman authorities to take Jesus' dead body off the cross. And with the help of another man named Nicodemus, whom you read about in John chapter 3, Joseph and Nicodemus placed Jesus' body in a tomb that was then sealed by a large rock that had been rolled in front of it. And literally, they would have put a sealant material between the stone and this tomb. Now, prior to Jesus being crucified, he had made several prophetic statements about being raised from the grave. One of them is found in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. It reads this. Jesus had answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They were thinking about the brick and mortar in Jerusalem. And you will raise it up in three days? But he, that is Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That was one prophecy. Jesus talked about it in similar terms in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So these were the statements that Jesus had made. And because the religious leaders remembered Jesus' claims concerning him being resurrected, they feared that Jesus' friends would steal his body out of the tomb, hide it somewhere, and spread fake news 
that Jesus indeed had resurrected and his claims were true. Well, in order to keep that from happening, a guard of soldiers was positioned at the tomb. So here's what we know. Jesus is dead. He's dead, dead. His body is in the tomb. It's sealed. And a group of Roman soldiers are now standing guard outside the tomb to make sure nothing happens. And as a Christian, these are the kinds of details included in the Bible that just makes me pump my fist and go, it's coming. Because when the enemies of Jesus try to keep him down, the more glorious he becomes when he comes out in victory. It happened. They tried to keep him down, but his claims were more powerful than their efforts. It happened. Not the stealing of Jesus' body, not grave robbers coming back and then spreading a false message. What happened was that Jesus, by his power, by the power of his Father, and by the power of the Spirit, resurrected from the tomb and did something that nobody else has done. He defeated death. We read a passage from Luke's gospel earlier. Let me read one from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, that shows us what happened that morning. The Bible says this, Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, there was a young girl asking me, do we know what time Jesus rose from the dead? So we don't know what time, we just know it's early in the morning. It's toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. And those last three words are especially important for us. He has risen As he said, it's Jesus making a claim to be resurrected. His death has come, and now it has come to take place. You and I can all make similar claims. You and I have the ability right now to say, I will raise myself from the grave someday. But we know we don't have the supernatural power to do that. Jesus made the claim, I will rise from the dead, and it happened. And this means that Jesus has the power to make his claims about everything be absolutely true. So the resurrection proves that Jesus is in a category all his own, apart from all other people, because what he says will come true. He resurrected from the dead. Now this morning, many of you wholeheartedly believe the truth of the Bible. You say, yes, Jesus is alive. I hold on to that truth. It's in my heart. I know it for certain. Some of you might be on the other end of the spectrum saying, I'm here this morning. Tell me a little bit more. I'm kind of new to this whole thing. I wouldn't say I'm a believer, but I'm here to listen. 
And others might be somewhere in between. Others might be like, yeah, he's alive, but if you were to ask me on Tuesday morning, does his resurrected life have any bearing on my life? I would say it doesn't feel like it, at least. There's no personal significance to me that Jesus is alive. And what I want to do for the second part of this sermon is take all three of those perspectives and bring them together and turn to the Bible, which says to us, oh, yes, there are significant implications for you as a person, no matter what category you are in this morning, as a believer, as a seeker, or maybe somebody who just feels like they're lukewarm in their Christianity and that the resurrection has no big significance in your life. So let's move on to the second part of the sermon with this question. Why do I need the death and resurrection of Jesus? Why do I need the death and resurrection of Jesus? And just by asking the question that way, why do I need, means that I'm needy. You take a poor person, a beggar, who's hungry and starving, and they're holding out their hands. They're saying, I have a need. I've got starvation going on. And on the flip side, what they're saying is, I need somebody else to meet this need that I have. When we look at the death and resurrection, we are needy, and we need somebody else to meet the need that we have. So what makes me needy before God? Well, as we're looking at Romans chapter 4, which is really a, a chapter about faith and about belief and how we have a right standing with God, what we find out is that we don't have a right standing with God to begin with. What makes us needy this morning is that we need righteousness. You see, we are sinful people, and we need a right standing with God. Chapter 3 of Romans explains to us that we are all sinners. And in verse 19, the Bible says, chapter 3, that we are ultimately accountable to God. Now, we all know that we are sinners, whether you believe the Bible this morning or not. We all have a sense of morality. You take a native who's deep in the jungles of South America or an aborigine who is in Australia. They know inherently that to walk up to someone else's hut and steal a machete, it's just wrong. There's something inside of them called a conscience that God has given that when you do that, that that is wrong. Or you take a Western atheist dressed up in a very expensive suit and expensive shoes, and that atheist goes to work. He knows that to lie in a business transaction is wrong. Why? Because God has given him a conscience. He's given us the word of God, which is very clear, and he's also given us this conscience. And so chapter 2 of Romans and chapter 3 make it clear that all of us know that we have done immoral, wrong things. And, And the Bible calls this sin. And we have to take the next step with sin. Because the Bible clarifies that sin is not simply just an offense against the person who has the machete outside of his hut or the business person that you're doing a transaction with, the Bible makes it very clear that every act of sin is actually a sin against God because I am violating 
his law of morality. And therefore, because we are violating his law of morality, we are ultimately accountable to him with everything that we do. So very clearly, we're needy because our sin makes us needy, and we are in a place of accountability to God, deserving a judgment for the sins that we have committed. The question is, has God provided a way for us, for all of us who are sinners, to be made right with him? Has God made it possible for us to go from sinner in his eyes to being a saint in his eyes, to go from being worthy of condemnation to standing in a place where we are justified or having justification. Is there a way to do that? And the Bible answers yes with an exclamation point. Righteousness can be accounted to anyone's life, to you and me from God, and that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 4 that you can have righteousness applied to you. So let's ask the question then, what meets my need if I'm standing needy before God? What meets my need? Well, number one is simply this. What meets my need is a crucified Lord. A crucified Lord. In verse 24 The Bible says righteousness, I know it says it, but it's referring to righteousness. Righteousness will be counted to us, us who are sinners, who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Verse 25, who was this Jesus? He was delivered up for our trespasses. So this is whom we're trusting in. We've trespassed God's law, and we need this Jesus who was delivered up for us. Now, when the Bible says that he is delivered up, we're going back to the story, part one of the sermon, where we know that Jesus willfully went to Jerusalem, willfully delivered his life up to the leaders and the Roman officials. We know that he could have defeated them with just a word from his mouth. But Isaiah 53, verse 7, just to get his attitude and his demeanor, says, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus willfully delivered. He didn't go in with his heels dug in. He didn't go in shouting at people, trying to justify himself. This was the plan of God from the beginning. He had become a human, lived a perfect sinless life, and went to Jerusalem in order to deliver himself up for the trespassers, you and I. So all the sin, all the lying and immorality and selfishness, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be delivered up for us. And he was delivered up in order to take the punishment that we deserved for our trespasses. When he hung on the cross, God's wrath was being poured out. The wrath that we deserve for our trespasses was being poured out against Jesus. And if you can kind of imagine this in your mind, where Jesus is on the cross as a great big shield, and behind him are all those who have trusted in him, who are being shielded from the just wrath of God. Just to maybe sink this in. Some of you, maybe many of you, saw this online a few weeks ago. A video was circulating uh, about a bull riding competition. You know how it goes. The huge bull is in the pen. Cowboy jumps on top of the bull. 
They take this belt around the stomach belly of the bull, tighten it up, which irritates the bull. They open up the gate, and out goes this bull trying to kick that belt off. And in the meantime, this cowboy is trying to ride the bull around this little pen. And so this cowboy gets kicked off this 1,200-pound bull, and right away you can tell that something's wrong because he goes motionless on the ground in this little stadium area. And so they've got those clowns or cowboys that try to distract the bull and get him away to another chute and get the cowboy, you know, back over the top of the fence. Well, this guy's laying motionless, and the cowboys couldn't deflect the bull away. And so off from the corner of the screen, you see this man jump the fence and runs out to the cowboy that's laying on the ground and lays his body over top of the cowboy because the bull is now coming back and actually gets his head down into the ground right where the cowboy is and starts, you know, kind of bucking him with his head. And the video finishes up later on. What's taking place is that that cowboy, who actually turned out to be the dad of the son, runs out and delivers himself up and puts himself in harm's way, even though he wasn't the one that was riding the bull, even though he wasn't the one who was falling off. He was the one who delivered himself up for his son willingly. And when we think about this, Jesus is the one who willfully delivers himself up in order to protect us from the judgment that we do deserve for all of those sins, whether it's stealing machetes, whatever it is, lying about a business deal, keeping things, the truth suppressed, saying words we never should have said before, acting out in ways that we know are wrong. Jesus delivers himself up for us. So we need a crucified Lord who will take that judgment for us. But it doesn't stop there. What meets my need is not simply a crucified Lord who stayed in the grave, but Paul says here that he was delivered up for our trespasses, and secondly, he was raised for our justification. We need a risen Savior. The second line says he was raised for our justification, which means that we have to be in a place where God would look at us and say, now that man has gone from being a sinner That woman has gone from being a sinner, and I, as the judge, am now declaring them no longer a sinner, but a saint. I'm declaring them no longer as guilty, but guiltless. And that's what the text is saying, that Jesus' resurrection is tied to that statement where we are declared by God to be innocent. I want to explain this because we ordinarily don't talk about the resurrection in terms of our righteous standing with God. Ordinarily, we talk about the death of Jesus in our place. But here it says that he was raised for our justification. So how does this connect? How is it that the resurrection is about our justification? Let's think of it in these ways. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So here's what that verse is simply saying. We all have sinned, and what does sin lead to? Sin leads to death. We all end up at death. That's the great conclusion of sin. 
If we were to illustrate it, maybe you think about a fuse that's leading to a stick of dynamite. The fuse has that spark. It's traveling along. And that fuse is leading to a greater destruction, that stick of dynamite. But if someone comes along and neutralizes that dynamite or takes the punch out of that dynamite, the dynamite's gone. And the power of that fuse is rendered useless. In our case, Jesus takes the fuse and the dynamite. He takes the sin and he takes the death. The whole catastrophe in our lives is removed from our account because Jesus was delivered up for our sin and he was raised for our justification. And when he goes to the cross and dies, he is bearing sin upon himself and taking the punishment that we deserve. He goes to the grave and the death that we deserve, which would be an eternal death in nature, in hell forever and ever, Jesus says, man, I'm going to peel that back for you, and I am going to keep you from that death. And you say, well, is this just spiritual death in nature? No, it's not just spiritual death in nature. It's also going to be that we who are in Christ are united to him, and just as Jesus was raised, and that death, that physical death was defeated, so we will be raised too, and we will have that eternal life. And so when we stand before God, we are standing before him behind the crucified Lord who takes the punishment for our sins, and we are standing behind the resurrected Savior who peels back the effect of death and says, I'm no longer going to let it be like a slaveholder to my people. And all of us who are behind Christ have this gift. And what Romans 4 is saying, the way to have this is just not to know that it's true. The way to have this is belief. It's not by works that we do this. It's simply by seeing the crucified Lord and our risen Savior and saying, now, I believe that. You think about this for just a minute. Some of you are young and have very few sinful regrets in your life, but you have them. Some of you are old and you have many sinful regrets in your life, and I don't know where I am. I'm somewhere in between, I guess, at 42. I look at some of those things that I've done in my life, and I think to myself, how could I have been so dumb? How could I have been so foolish? And there's this, like, lingering echo of that sin in your mind. It stays around. And there's this voice in that echo that says, you're guilty before God. You are guilty before God. Some of you are at a place in your life where you're saying, man, I'm tired of the guilt. I know I'm a mess. I blew this whole Christianity thing off to the side when I was a young person. I've been living for myself for so long, and I've been in active sin, maybe even decades of active sin. I'm guilty, and I deserve eternal punishment. I know I'm guilty before God. Like, I'm not even trying to hide it anymore. I deserve the consequences for it. And here's the truth of God's word, that he loves you, and in his love, he sent his son for you who was delivered up for your trespasses and who was raised for your justification. Does it mean you're perfect? Absolutely not. But it means that God has provided a way for every sinner to have a right standing with him. 
So that Romans 10 verse 9 simply says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you know he's died, and now you know he's been raised from the dead, the text says you will be saved. So if you lay hold of Jesus as your Savior, the one who died and rose again, then the Bible says that you are saved. You are justified before God. You have a right standing with him. And this is the starting block of the Christian life. It doesn't matter what kind of junk you've done in the past. It doesn't mean that that junk doesn't have consequences or feel burdensome to you at times. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is more powerful than the worst of sinners. And Jesus can take that sin upon himself in order to justify you. If you look at yourself and you say, man, I don't know. I've been up and down. I feel like I keep coming back for forgiveness over and over again. Let this be a comfort to you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? Here is his purpose. Not to save the moderate sinners, but to save sinners. And Paul, the great persecutor of the church, who's, who's going to be like, known for having Christians in prison and murdered. He says, I am the foremost, and the crucified and risen Lord came for sinners like Paul, for sinners like you. So if you're a non-Christian, you're in that second category that I was talking about. You're here, you're kind of a seeker, you're wondering what's going on here, like tell me more. I want you to know that as you go out from here this morning, Jesus died and he rose again for you. And if you believe in him in faith, you're entering into a new relationship and you're like, I can't do this on my own. The great promise is here, you won't have to. You will work at it, but God will give you a helper along the way. He'll work on your heart, he'll work on your mind, and he will transform you from the inside out. Will you be perfect? No, you won't be perfect. None of us are perfect. We all got our screw-ups, mess-ups, sins, all of it. But he leads you down a new path. Christian, this is a glorious truth for us. To know that Jesus is not dead in the tomb, but has, is alive and has accomplished your, your justification. Because we know that we've all sinned. And we've seen it this week in our life. And sometimes the consequences of those sins keep going with us for some time. But if you're a Christian who believes in Jesus, which means then you are a Christian, the Jesus who's delivered up for us and raised for us, God will never bring you into eternal condemnation. For those sins have been covered by Christ, have been born by Christ, have been carried by Christ. You will never carry or bear the penalty of eternal death. And not only that, but the resurrection of Jesus will not only ensure your right standing. When you look at the resurrection, as I've alluded to earlier, it's this promise that we do have eternal life. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 57, where he says, at the end of this passage that talks about the resurrection, he says, death is swallowed up in victory, the victory of Jesus' resurrection that we share in. So that we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death will come, but it doesn't have a victory over us. 
we can conclude, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? And I'll just close with this. On Friday afternoon, I was able to visit with one of our senior saints, Kay Muir. Kay, you might be watching. We're praying for you and thankful for you. She's over at Blodgett Hospital. She's 87 years old. So I read scripture with her and prayed. And in our conversation, she eked out with the strength that she has. She says, I don't have fear of death. How can a woman who's in that situation say that? How can someone who is possibly toe-to-toe with the curtain of death say, I have no fear of going through that? We read Psalm 23. We got to the valley of the shadow of death. She says, I've got no fear of that. How is it? It's because she knows that she has been made right with God through the crucified Lord and the risen Savior. She knows she's a sinner, but she knows who Jesus is. And what a blessing for us as Christians that we know this life is not the end because the tomb is empty. We've been justified and we'll be right with God forever and ever because we share in the resurrection of Jesus. We've been justified. Let's pray.